Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know that I've ever seen a better script. I mean, there's no bad scenes. And I love the last scene. The editing, the editing was so good. Really, really, really good. That zither music, I'm telling you, there's no other film that has a soundtrack like that. All that stuff was just really, really well done. You guys will be happy to know that I loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I really liked it. (laughs) Welcome to today's episode of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers to see if it still plays for today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker. I'm an instructor at the Los Angeles Film School, and I am co-founder and CEO of Electrocast Media. I'm David Tausick. I direct and write feature films, or at least I did until I started making podcasts. Hi, my name is Guy Lewis. I'm a film student at Los Angeles Film School, and I like movies. I'm Grace Chapman, and I am also a Los Angeles Film School student, and I am an aspiring screenwriter. And I'm Jake Flowers. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I am an aspiring image consultant. And we have a very special guest with us today, And Michelle, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? I study entertainment business at LA Film School, too. I do social media content, and I love learning about cinema and art. So let's do this. Well, we're so glad to have you here. I've had all of you as students. You're fantastic. And the show has been great. This is our fifth episode. And I'm so excited because this past week, we all watched the 1949 British film noir thriller, The Third Man. Starring Joseph Cotton, Orson Welles, Alita Valley, and Trevor Howard. It was directed by Carol Reed, written by Graham Greene, and produced by Alexander Korda and David Selznick. The basic plot, right after the end of World War II, a hack writer of pulp novels named Holly Martins is called to the occupied, rubble-strewn Vienna, Austria, by his best friend from college, Harry Lyme. However, the day that Holly arrives... He finds himself immediately going to Harry's funeral because Harry's been killed in a mysterious car accident that appears more and more suspicious as Holly investigates. And by the way, this is also part of our ongoing quest to find a black and white movie that Grace really likes. (laughs) I can't wait to find out. Yeah, I can't wait to find out. So with no further ado, I'm going to go to Guy first. Guy Initial reaction seeing the movie, and if it's a day or two later or whatever, has it changed at all? At first, I was confused as to whether it was a comedy or a drama because of the soundtrack was like really weird yeah. for the moments that were going down. But then I, I just fell into the movie and I thought it was great. And there's film heroes that I stole from this film, and I thought that was cool to see. Jake, what was your initial reaction watching this? My first reaction was to the soundtrack. (laughs) Let me just interrupt and say the soundtrack is all a single piece of music by a zither player named Anton Karras. Yeah, I did some research on that guy. He was found in a wine bar. He had never even professionally recorded anything before that. And by the way, that song, the third man theme, top of the charts for 10 weeks. Wow. Wow. Carol Reed heard him in the bar. The director. Uh, Yeah, and he immediately went up to the Zither Players hotel room and just said, play for me. And it sounded so fantastic. He decided right then and there, this is what we're going to do. Then when they got him in the studio, it didn't sound the same. He always felt like the performance he got in the hotel room was the best one ever, Mm. but it's lost to history. But what he did in the studio was he actually had Karis perform it under a table. 
That's right. Mm-hmm. So oh, make it sound more like a hotel room. Interesting. Oh, that's interesting. So Jake, you were saying... I had a good initial reaction to it. I'm a fan of film noir to begin with, so there's not a noir film I haven't enjoyed. I love all the shadowy shots and the really interesting cinematography. And there were some insane picture moments where I was like, they got this on camera. That's crazy in 1949. But I loved it. I loved the scene with the cat. And there's just so many little touches that were just added for the sake of cinematography, which I really appreciated. All right, Grace, how'd we do? You guys will be happy to know that I loved it. Uh, (laughs) I really liked it. (laughs) I like some black and white movies. (laughs) I love crime noir as well. So it it sucked me in from the beginning. And I'm also a huge Orson Welles fan. So anything he does, I want to see it. Greatest Orson Welles performance? Um, This one was pretty good. Yeah, well, obviously Citizen Kane. But I was really shocked by his performance in this. He's such a good villain. Well, bad guy, I guess, because he's not so much of a typical villain because he's very complex. You should hate him, but you want him to escape. But that's what makes good characters. Well, let's talk about that for a second before we get Anne Michelle's reaction. A couple of things about this movie that are really unusual. Orson Welles' character, Harry Lyme, doesn't appear until an hour into the movie, literally about two thirds through the film. Yet almost every line of dialogue before that is about him. It's considered one of the greatest entrances in the history of the movies. And we can talk about the entrance a little bit later, mm-hmm. but he's so charming yeah. that even though he's a bastard, he kind of lights up the screen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Michelle, what was your reaction to The Third Man? And is this your first time seeing it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's my first time seeing it. I was overwhelmed because the first sentence just had a lot of information and I was like, oh, damn, I really have to pay attention, you know, <laughs> like it's not the movie that you can be semi watching it. I don't love black and white movies, but I did enjoy this one a lot. I think that it has a great story and a lot of plot twists. And I can see how a lot of movies were inspired by this specific one. You know, I think the cinematography is great. Like I really enjoyed a lot of scenes were very impactful and like they didn't even have to say anything, but just by the mood, the audio. So I think it's really well done. You talk about the photography as everyone has, but you talked about in particular, that's the Oscar they won for best cinematography. Mm-hmm. And it might have been black and white cinematography. I think they had color and black and white back then. The other thing I read about was that it was really expensive to constantly water those streets. All those rain slick mm-hmm. streets, that was all done yeah. with water trucks. Well, I also read that the director, Carol Reed, he actually started with comedies and he slowly transitioned into dramas and more like suspense. So I think that that's really like a signature of him that he knows how to bring to the table like both. And 20 years later, he won the Oscar for Best Director for the musical Oliver. Which is very different than most of his films, right? Yeah. Yeah. Some darkness in that one as well. Does anyone have a choice for best scene in the picture? Oh, my God. I do. Yeah. We probably agree. On yeah. That. <laughs> Jake, you go first. Well, I, I don't want to steal your go, comment. No, but, go ahead. Um, I think for me, it was those insane shots of the Ferris wheel and those powerful, like, up-angled shots of the Ferris wheel. I was just blown away. I had never seen something from a film that old that looked, like, so crisp and... You know how they shot that? They established it in Vienna, but I think they only shot like three weeks of this film in Vienna and they shot three months in the studios in London. Yeah, the soundstage. Right. So every shot in which you see Orson Welles is on a soundstage with rear projection. Yeah, we looked that up while we were watching because we were both like, this is insane. There's no way they're in that swinging (laughs) car right now. But it was really cool. I also read that the shot of Orson Welles' shadow, when you first see him, that's not even him. He couldn't make it that day. It's some other guy's shadow. Yeah, it's interesting. The assistant director on this, Guy Hamilton, was the one who doubled for Orson Welles when Welles wasn't in the shot and long shots and shadows. Went on to direct James Bond movies, starting with Goldfinger. And there's a member of the British military police there, and then he's got an assistant. And the assistant is the only one who Mm -hmm. even knows who Holly Martins is, the pulp writer, and is a fan. That guy Mm -hmm. goes on to become M 
in all the early Bond movies. Bernard oh. Lee. There's a long Bond history coming from this film. Pretty cool, pretty cool. And I think Orson Welles was in the parody of Casino Royale. Yeah, absolutely right. So I'm going to lay out a little bit of plot. So as Holly investigates, he gets close with Harry Lime's girlfriend, mm -hmm. who's an actress of confusing foreign origin. We're not sure if she's Viennese or what, and that becomes a plot point. And she's still deeply in love with Harry, even though he's dead or she believes so. And by the way, there will be spoilers because this movie is 74 years old. <laughs> Had your uh, chance to watch it. I know. Yeah. And she's played by Alita Valley, just going by the name Valley in this. And she's just gorgeous. And I think just mm -hmm. and one of the things that I found really funny about the movie is Holly keeps trying to hit on her <laughs> and she blows him off. Yeah. <laughs> Consistently. Every time. Yeah, every time. The other thing I was going to say is that as Holly investigates the British military police, played by Trevor Howard and Bernard Lee, they try to get him involved in helping to find out what's really going on. And eventually, Holly finds that Harry is still alive. And that reveal of how he's alive is one of the great moments in cinema, which leads to the meeting on the Ferris wheel, where you wonder whether or not Harry's going to push Holly through the door and crash into the ground. And this is kind of the crux of the movie. This is what it builds up to in an incredible way. So I want to keep going with the scene thing. So Grace, did you have a scene that was your favorite? Yeah, I really liked, well, Jake stole mine. But <laughs> I My second favorite was when the man with the dog was playing the violin for the large woman eating. I really love that shot. And I just loved all the crooked shots, which I learned are called Dutch shots. Very like disorienting. I'm going to throw it back to Do the Right Thing, which we mm -hmm. did in episode 103. You remember the Dutch angles in that, especially towards the end? The cinematographer Ernest Dickerson said they got all the ideas for that from The Third Man. Wow. Wow. That's yeah, the Dutch angles were a really big deal. And in fact, another director, William Wyler, after the movie was released, gave Carol Reed a carpenter's level and said, you can put this on the camera next time to make sure that it stays <laughs> even. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love it. It adds such a mood. Yeah, what it's you disorienting in that it like makes you almost tilt your head while you're watching. Yeah, I think I like it because I'm just not used to seeing that. What do you guys think that the Dutch angles do for the movie? What's the feeling that it gives you? Off kilter, like we're sinking almost. Makes you feel like you're slipping, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I were you going to say, Anne? Yeah, like action and chaos. Feeling of chaos. And this is post-World War II, right? Exactly. So that, That's what mm -hmm. I was going to say. It must be so scary living in that city with everything going on. Like, they probably feel like they're... Topsy-turvy. Yeah, exactly. Everyone seems to have a secret. I mean, you don't quite know, but those faces, it's like all those people look like they've got something going on that they're not revealing. And the thing about those Dutch angles, it makes me feel like they're hiding something. There's something just not right. Yeah. Everyone's got an angle. <laughs> the one that stuck out to me the most was the Dutch angle of Holly and the British cop in the sanitarium with the children. When it starts sinking in about how Harry was a really, really bad guy, it symbolizes how Holly was changing his mind about Harry, you know. They did some good stuff with the cinematography. And then my favorite shot of this film was when they were doing that chase and they tilt up and it's a spiral staircase mm. going all the way up. And then after that, it was like all these lines of the streets. It was good stuff. It's really hard to pick a favorite. And also in the sewer, when they go underground, when it's uh, like open and vast, I've never seen anything like that. It really took my breath away. It's really hard to choose a favorite mm -hmm. shot. It's yeah. every shot's gorgeous. The yeah. climax of the film is super famous because it's a chase through the sewers. And they started to shoot in the Vienna sewers. And Orson Welles, who's from California at that point, was like, I, I'm not going to do this. So they <laughs> ended up building it all in a studio in London. Oh, wow. He said it was too cold. And Michelle, did you have a favorite scene in the movie? It's really hard to pick, to be honest. I did enjoy a lot all the chasing scenes, you know, when he's like coming down the hill. The cat scene is amazing, too, and the reveal. But in terms of interaction, I really like the scene where he's talking about his book and he's all distracted and people are leaving. And then the detective shows up and he starts saying, oh, it's fiction. And he's like, no, it's facts. And they're talking actually about the murder. And I love the last scene, too, when Holly is just walking in 
she passes him by and he's smoking a cigarette and there's this like open space. Mm -hmm. I just like stare at it. I was like, whoa. Is it okay to jump ahead, David, to the last shot or is it crazy to talk about it right now? No, I, I wanted to. I had two scenes I was deciding and one of them was the last shot, which I really yeah, loved. Was. The most amazing thing to me about the last shot is that every film ends with the man and the woman getting together, right? He's been after her the whole film. She's very sad and lonely and so is he. You're just dying for them to get together and then they just pass each other and she doesn't even look at him. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh, my God. And it's long, too. It keeps you waiting, 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 waiting. And nothing happens. I loved it. I mm -hmm. love that. Okay. So but since you asked about the other scene, I'll take the one, too. So first of all, every scene has something really good in it. I mean, there's no bad scenes. Mm -hmm. But Holly has no money. He arrives there. He thinks Harry Lyme's going to put him up somewhere. And suddenly there's no place to stay. So this old guy comes and says... Oh, you know, you're an author. You know, we have a club. We meet every, you know, why don't you come and speak? And he offers to put him up in the hotel. And you think the whole scene is just about, oh, that's how Joseph Cotton gets the money to stay around and start investigating. And then suddenly, halfway through the movie, like 45 minutes later, he goes in the cab, right? There's this car waiting for him. The lead up to that is really interesting. And this is where the third band comes in, because everyone says to Holly, there was two men but then this porter says, no, 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 there were three men who took the dead body away. And of course, Harry is the third man. He's the title character of the movie. And at one point, the porter is murdered because yeah. he's the only witness. And even though you don't see it, I'd argue he's murdered by Harry. And when Holly, by the way, Harry and Holly, those names are very similar, right? When Holly shows up with the girlfriend in front of the building where the porter is dead, the little boy says that he's the murderer and everybody starts chasing Holly. A cab pulls up and Holly jumps into the cab to get away. And you think that he's going to be murdered. Right. It happens just after a murder. And the cab driver is driving like crazy through the streets. And you know, oh my God. And Joseph Cotton's trying to get out, but the doors are locked. And then he's just, you know, they're just taking him to this stupid speech that he's supposed to give, which you forgot about. This book club speech, which is the scene that Anne was talking about, which then becomes a whole double entendre. And it's funny because one of the questions that he's asked that Holly, because he's not really an intellectual, can't answer, is what do you have to say about the crisis of faith? Because, of course, after World War II, a lot of crisis of faith. And Holly's like, what? What? What is that? And by the end of the movie, Holly's had a crisis of faith, finally. I think the whole movie is an innocence to experience tale. And I think part of what makes this such a resonant film is that it's really about America and Europe, as represented by these characters. The Europeans are disillusioned. They're war-torn. You've got a guy called the Baron who's playing a violin for, you know, pennies in a bar at night in order just to stay alive. And he says, if my father saw what I was doing, what would he think? So he probably came from money. All turned upside down. Anna keeps saying whenever something comes up, she goes, it doesn't matter. Why does it matter? But the American bustling in there doesn't know anything, but is sure going to like try to find out and find out what happens. And <laughs> it's kind he of has like, no idea what he's stepping into at all. I mean, he's way over his mm -hmm. head. So often. Yeah. yeah. Something that really caught my attention was how Kali was so in love with the wrong guy that didn't even save her at all. You know that? kind of stigma of wanting the bad guy and not wanting the guy that does everything for you. Tell me about it. I was like, oopsie, because he turned her in. No? That's what I said this time yeah, watching he it. he turned her in to the police because of her passports and stuff. At least that's what it was implied when they two spoke. Yeah, uh, girl, you're choosing the wrong man. Yeah, exactly. I so identified with Joseph Cotton. This whole idea of he's in love <laughs> with this woman and she's in love with the most horrible man in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's just he nothing you can do to get her to even care about him. Whoa, TMI. I like how they set that up, have that <laughs> shaky shot of her walking from the funeral. And then it's like basically the same shot at the very end when he sees her walking and then she just keeps it moving. So this shot, you know, it's been studied, it's 70 seconds long and you watch her from a distance and it feels like it takes forever. And then once she starts getting close to camera, she seems to move really fast. I think it's just because it's a wide angle lens. You know, as you get closer, things kind of move quicker. And then after she passes camera, he lights a cigarette and that's the end of the movie. 
And by the way, the author, Graham Greene, wanted them to get together at the end. He wanted them to link arms. And the director and one of the producers, David Selznick, said, uh-uh. Yeah, I love the end. Yeah, that 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 kind of hurt as, as a dude. It's a painful ending. That kind of like, ouch. I know. I mean, uh, real interesting. So as far as the reveal of Harry, did you think he was never going to show up? And the way he shows up is that she has this cat and Holly showed up at her apartment at night. He's drunk. Um, he's been bitten by a parrot and the cat won't play with him. She goes, he only ever liked Harry. And then Holly leaves the apartment and he's outside. And we know someone is in the shadows out there and the cat goes to the feet. And there's this whole theme in the movie of strings, by the way, you have the, in the opening titles, you're seeing the strings, you mm -hmm. see the cat playing with the strings, right? And then the cat is playing mm -hmm. with Harry's shoelaces there. And then Holly starts calling out, reveal yourself. A woman opens her window and basically in German saying, shut up. And the light hits Harry, played by Orson Welles. And we get our first reveal of him like an hour or so into the movie. And he gives you this little smile. So what was your feeling about the reveal of Harry? Because it's such a huge part of the legend of this movie. The style of the reveal and him being in that arch of the doorway with just the glint of light on his face, it captured that feeling of when you see someone somewhere that you're not expecting to see them mm -hmm. like someone you know and I was like oh shit do you know what I mean it strikes you and then he's suddenly gone and you're like oh, come back we want to see more of mm -hmm. you yeah I still thought Harry was dead me too <laughs> the whole entire time yeah it was good it was, good. It was a nice reveal he got me well done I thought it was going to be someone else, like a very surprising character, but I didn't expect it to be him. And I think that when the cat looks up, the music, all that stuff was just really, really well done. You think about this, nobody else could play that role. There's something about Orson Welles where he comes with a lot of heft. He and Joseph Cotton had at that point known each other for over 15 years. Wells had kind of discovered Cotton and made him part of the Mercury Theater, this very famous theater company in New York. And then taking him to Hollywood for Citizen Kane. So these guys really had a relationship that wasn't dissimilar from the Harry-Holly relationship in the movie. But I was thinking about this, you know, I would never remake this movie, and I think someone's probably tried. Mm -hmm. uh, DiCaprio and Tobey Maguire were supposed to do one in 2006. Uh, <laughs> if you were going to do it today, who would you have play Harry and Holly? Are we going to do it with the backdrop of post-World War II? Post 9-11? No. <laughs> Post-Ukrainian war? Yeah. That could work. We shoot it in two years or whatever when Russia's been kicked out and Ukraine is in rubble and some Americans going over there and is selling watered-down penicillin. That could work. Too real. <laughs> I don't know. I want to say Ryan Gosling. So Gosling is Harry? Yeah. I kind of want to see Pedro Pascal. He's everywhere nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he just has that look that Orson Welles has that he's so intriguing and handsome, but at the same time, like grotesque almost. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Been watching a lot of Last of Us. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering who else but Joseph Cotton could have played the part then because they wanted Cary Grant for that role. That's what David Selznick wanted. For Holly? Yeah, he wanted Cary Grant. And for Harry Lyme, he wanted Noel Coward. So I think those would have been terrible choices. Hmm. And the thing is, Holly is so clueless. How many actors can go in there and be that clueless and be that wrong? I mean, it's a little bit like Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. He's mm. similarly clueless, right? So Nicholson did a good job of that. But Cary Grant can't walk in and be clueless. If he is, it's a comedy, mm -hmm. like a total comedy. Yeah, I agree with you about that. I think one of the things about Wells, too, is that it's not just that he's a great actor, but part of his presence is that he's a great director. And you get a sense that if there's going to be somebody who knows how to operate a crime syndicate, Wells would make sense. I don't know that I would necessarily look at Ryan Gosling and go criminal mastermind. <laughs> also, Orson yeah. Wells was famous as a magician. There's so many places where he just disappears and it's like a magic trick. And I always associate Wells with that. He said that that was the essence of movies. It was all magic tricks. It was, you divert people and then, you know. One of my favorite scenes in the movie and the ones you guys have named, I would name. But the scene where they lay the trap for Harry and Joseph Cotton's waiting in this cafe and you see Harry showing up on top of the rubble. 
he almost looks godlike up there, right? And you get his point of view shot. And he's the guy who sees everything, which harkens back to the Ferris wheel, right? The idea of having this high view. And then Harry makes the comment about if one of those dots down there, meaning the people, if one of them were to die and it would make X amount of money, would you worry about them? Or would you think about how many of them you could afford to spend? So you have this sort of high view, which then, of course, ends up with Harry being in the sewer later, where he's kind of god of the underworld, like Satan, like running around his sewers that she uses to escape. But Cotton is waiting in the cafe. The cops are waiting. And Anna shows up. And she's basically realized that Cotton is laying a trap. And she still loves Harry. And then Harry comes in through the door. And there's a moment when Orson Welles realizes that it's a trap. And the look on his face, mm-hmm. that's when, okay, yeah. it's on. The fuse has been lit, and now the firecracker's going off. Mm-hmm. You, know, you mentioned him being Lord of the Underworld. But I think of it as the last thing that Harry does, he's in the sewer, sticking his fingers up through a grate, trying to get up to the street, and he can't. He's stuck in the sewer, and they're coming to shoot him. So he starts off looking down at everybody, but his end is down in the sewer, looking up, just trying to get up into the gunner. He's below the gunner. That wasn't Wells. That was actually the director because... Oh, because the fingers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the fingers was the director's (laughs) because... Right. They had a lot of trouble getting Orson Welles to show up on time. It was difficult to deal with. (laughs) He wouldn't make it or what? Yeah, he wouldn't show up. He'd show up late. I mean, he's a film director. You'd think he'd be really conscious of the need to have the actors on the set on time, but he... Yeah, but he was like really big at this time, right? No, yeah. He was the wonderkind of America. Yeah, so he's not showing up on time. I remember being in Times Square about 30 years ago, God knows, watching Aliens, the sequel to Alien. And sure enough, there's a scene with the fingers trying to get up through the grate. Wow, yeah, 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 yeah. I think I had just seen Third Man for the first time. I wanted to scream out, Third Man, in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) That scene you mentioned where he's talking about look down to the people, and he even says, like, without taxes. I could feel that Holly was like, hmm, I don't know if this guy is worth my loyalty. I could feel that that's when he was realizing, I really do not stand by what this man does. This is not my friend. I I don't know him, you know? And after that, it's when he decides to turn him in. And also that conversation where Holly is talking to him about the girl. And he's like, I can do anything. I'm dead. And he's even realizing more like, damn, he's heartless, you know? Yeah. So why do we like him so much? He's hot. (laughs) (laughs) We always like the bad guys. Yeah, we like smooth bad guys. He's (laughs) handsome. (laughs) I I do like Holly, though. I did like Holly Yeah, they're both both I was like, I'll take him for sure. You know? (laughs) You take him, I'll take the other one. (laughs) It's funny. When Orson Welles met Joseph Cotton and, and they got to know each other, he said, you know, Tragedy is you'll never be a great actor, but you will be a movie star. Ouch. Damn. Damn. Cotton's a pretty good actor, but, you know, never won any Oscars or anything like that. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the movie is there's a constant mistaken identity. There's this constant confusion of names. Um, Holly and Harry, I mean, already, you know, and Michelle had confusion with the name, right? And in the movie, (laughs) at one point, Anna calls Holly Harry. Yeah you know, by accident. And there's the confusion of who's the person who was really killed. And you find out it's this hospital orderly who probably found out about what they had done and they had to knock him off. And it was a way for Harry to disappear was by putting a different body in the grave and stuff. And one of my favorite moments of that kind of confusion is when Holly goes to visit the doctor, Dr. Winkle. And Holly, <laughs> Holly keeps calling him twice. He calls him Dr. Winkle. Winkle. And he says, Winkle. There were so many times in the movie where there was those kinds of confusions, like the society group that wants to see Holly speak. They mistake him for a great American writer, not like a piece of shit pulp writer, right? Yeah. And even the crowd asking him questions when he mentions his favorite authors, they're like, who? Which one? Mm -hmm. That is an interesting theme throughout the whole movie. This is why the script is so good, is it keeps you on your toes the whole time. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever seen a better script. I mean, there may be ones that are really great and good and as good, but I mean, something unbelievable. I was, I was also confused to like why the doorman chose to help out of the sudden because the last encounter they had, they were fighting. 
you know the doorman with Harry? Holly, Holly, Holly. <laughs> yeah, he says, I don't want to get involved. I don't, he's afraid. Yeah, like, I don't want to get involved. Like, and then right. all of a sudden, he screams out the window, like, come tonight, I'll help you. And I was like, what happened? Well, it, I don't it, think that was shown, right? Or, or well, his, his wife pulled him away the first time, right? His wife doesn't want him to get into trouble. And then he says, oh. well, my, come back when my wife isn't here. Well, he should have listened to his damn wife. <laughs> Didn't we all? <laughs> That's the lesson. <laughs> yeah, very important. Hollywood censorship at that time was strange. You mentioned the authors. The guy asks, what do you think of James Joyce? And in the original script, it was, what do you think of Oscar Wilde? There are a few characters that seem gay. <laughs> I mean, that guy. And, and so Hollywood censors or somebody at the studios said, we can't have mask about Oscar Wilde. That's wow. you know, just have mask about James Joyce. It's so silly. But you think Harry Lyme killed the porter, and maybe you're right. But couldn't it have been one of those two guys? Can I give you my evidence? Yeah, sure. So the porter said to Harry, come back when my wife is away. He closes the window, he turns around, and there's a look on his face like he's seen a ghost. Mm. That's true. Yes. And I'm mm. sure the reverse shot was Orson. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I thought you had evidence, like, you know, seeing. 15 minutes in, his shoe print matched the shoe print from what? <laughs> <laughs> speculation. It's well, I have guess. another question. I can't remember be. their names, but the two guys, one of them is Romanian. Yeah. And the other... The Baron. The Baron. Are they a couple? Were you asking me? <laughs> no, I was asking the whole group. The whole film is laced with homoerotic. He was saying that. Yes. <laughs> like, just film noir in general. Maybe this is why I like it so much. But actors in general at this time got so close to each other on camera. There was this caressing between men that would never be in a film today unless the characters were being portrayed as homosexual. That's gay. That's and true. Yeah, feel- like the scene in the Ferris wheel where they're like, mm-hmm, I'm like, mm-hmm. they're going to kiss. What's going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, darn. <laughs> yeah, I know that you say that. It's this loyalty and love that they have for each other. It, that doesn't mean they're gay, but it does make me wonder. Was that the only way they could portray this kind of relationship between men? Like, was there something else underneath? Well, it's kind of like Mark and David. You know, like they were like long-term friends. David, I've got something to tell you. (laughs) No. (laughs) We've all been waiting for this moment. I hate to confess it, but Mark and I shared a room at our Brown class reunion. Mm. (laughs) We went to a college reunion about six years ago and shared a room together. They were separate beds, but... You pushed them together? was tempting. <laughs> it's a, you're in a safe you're in a, place. In a safe place yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah, I want to say that, Jake, I noticed too how close they got, particularly like towards the end when Orson Welles is passing Holly just before he does that final incredible speech about how, I won't do it justice, but how Italy had war and famine and they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance in Switzerland had 400 years of peace and prosperity. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. That was that was crazy. <laughs> Improvised by Wells, by the way. The research I did, they said he like basically wrote all this stuff that he said. When I first saw the film, I thought, oh, Orson Wells must have helped direct this because it looks like Citizen Kane and it it uses so many techniques from Kane, even that parakeet that bites him. Remember that there's that smash cut in Citizen Kane where it goes like and the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. same thing. There are a lot of similarities, but it turns out from my reading that Wells wasn't interested in directing this. He trusted Carol Reed, and he didn't have the time anyway. They were so, friends. Um, Reed was the one who brought Wells in because they were friendly. Sure. Yeah, I guess Reed was influenced by Wells. Probably everybody who saw Citizen Kane and wanted to make an arty black and white film was influenced by it. Well, Carol Reed made another really great thriller, not quite as great, but with James Mason about the Irish Troubles. Odd Man Out. Odd Man Out, and it's a real good one. Yeah. I recommend it. What do you think about this movie has made it last so long? I mean, people are still talking about it. You guys still like it. Definitely the cinematography, because it's just iconic and has influenced so many other films. It's just spectacular, and that's why I won the Academy Award. But that zither music, I'm telling you, there's no other film that has a soundtrack yeah. like that. I mean, the combination of those two and like yeah. this whole film just carries a unique energy that other crime noir film noirs just don't have. Let me bring up a theme that I think might be part of it. Ultimately, the question is, how loyal do you stay to somebody when you find out they've done something really terrible? Mm -hmm. If your best friend commits murder and clearly did it, do you stay friends? 
If you find out they've been cheating grandmothers of their life savings, do you stay loyal? What do you, your childhood friend, the person you grew up with, well, are you guys laughing because you've been in that situation or what? No, you know, Grace robs grannies. Oh, no. Kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's it. It makes you think about your yeah. relationships. To me, I think I'd react like Holly. He's loyal to his friend right up into the moment where it's in his face and he realizes, okay, this guy doesn't care about other people and he's willing to kill children to make money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In that point, I could not be somebody's friend. No. Yeah, exactly. I feel like it's that fine line where your friend cheated on his partner or maybe stole some money. Like those things are bad too, but you know, you're still there. But when it gets to the point where they can kill someone for money and just answering Professor Mark's question, something that really resonated with me was the whole storyline, how it kept changing, like plot twist, plot twist, plot twist. And it reminded me of these drug lord in Mexico. And this is a real story in like the 70s that he was like the most wanted drug lord. And the way he would cross drugs to the U.S. was in huge Boeing planes. And he had 70 and he will land them in the U.S., you know, so huge logistics. And then he went to get plastic surgery to change his face and he died. He was never found again. Of course, people wonder if he died because he was going to change his identity and he died from like complications, you know. So when I realized that he was alive, it just reminded me of that. And I was like, oh, damn, this is something that actually happens. You know, it's not just fiction. Like, criminals really fake their deaths. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, following up on Mark's comment, it's like Europe versus America. So Harry Lyme's an American, and he's the most corrupt person of all. But you see all these other Europeans in post-war Vienna, God knows what they've had to do to get through the war. Maybe some of them had to kill, too, because a lot of people had to kill to get through World War II or let somebody else get killed in their place so they could survive or whatever. But Harry comes in and he's American. He doesn't have to do any of this. The Viennese people are so sinister looking and Harry is charming and handsome, but you know, he's more evil than any of them. Did you guys notice all the faces look like people they just found on the streets or locals mm -hmm. or something? They did. Mm -hmm. They did find them on the streets. Yeah. Like the neighbors, like opening a window or cleaning in. That was cool. And the so, other thing that's disorienting, just one, is I swear, like a third of the film is in German and there are no subtitles. Yeah. yeah. You kind of get what people are saying, but you, you can't really understand it. It's just part of all the disorientation that's going mm -hmm. on when you're thrown into this place. And that's something that the director insisted on, that you not know what they're saying. And one of the things I love is that feeling of being in a strange country where you don't know the language. And that feeling of being a stranger in a strange land, I think, is so strong in this movie. And people in Germany are really cold. Yeah, my experience when I first visited Germany was I would meet people and they would seem that way. And then there would be something that would turn and they would be incredibly warm. There was this one guy I was staying with. He was a doctor who had helped to train my dad. And he was like very proper. We had this proper dinner with him and his wife. And then afterwards, he goes to write his letters. And she says, then you will have schnapps with him. And we sit down, we have schnapps, and he became like a teddy bear. That's the Northern European thing. Uh, the Viennese obviously had sided, you know, a lot of them were Nazis. I mean, Hitler was from was Austria. It, was Austrian, yeah. Yeah, right. Just think of all the things these people went through. Maybe some of them supported Hitler. Maybe some of them were doing everything they could to stop him, but they couldn't. And then they went through this horrible war and their whole city was destroyed. One of the oldest, greatest cities on the planet. Beautiful city. Yeah. They're also being occupied, right? And I think that that was really important to show the difference between people that are doing wrong things for survival as opposed to really, truly evil people doing things for greed. When the Allies all came in and then the Russians came in, the Viennese Zoo, which was one of the most famous zoos in all the world for centuries, was empty because people had come and eaten all the animals. That's how hungry they were. On that note. Yeah. <laughs> Cheery, right? I know everyone's done a little bit of research, and I think we've woven some of that into this. So if we have, you don't have to go over it. But Jake, did you have anything else that you wanted to add about the times when the movie came out? The studio system was declining in Hollywood. And so there was this shift in focus to independent direction and production. And NATO was happening, atomic bombs, and it like this terrifying, uncertain time, but there was an element of optimism as well. So you have this war where the unspeakable happened, 
right? People slaughtered in concentration camps and in warfare, beautiful cities turned to rubble. And you talk about NATO. So in a way, having this microcosm in the movie where you have Russia, France, England, and America all controlling Vienna's geopolitics. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. And I think that film noir comes out of that disillusionment from the war. Yeah, I'll never forget the first film studies class that Grayson actually took together. Our professor really focused on film noir, and she talked a lot about why genres come about and their popularity. I remember she showed us It Happened One Night, and just understanding, finally, as a young person, why people watch films in black and white and like what the draw is. Orson Welles also told Peter Bogdanovich that black and white was the actor's friend, Mm -hmm. and it made every performance better. Yeah, but just also it it was every cinematographer's friend. Color was a pain in the butt for cinematographers, whereas with black and white, they could use all their tricks. They could put a filter and give more contrast. You know, you could put a red filter on it and it would change the look. You put a yellow filter on it and it doesn't change the color, but it changes the way the picture comes out. Every good cinematographer had a huge bag of tricks with black and white that went out the window when color came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a totally different thing going on. Grace, I know we've talked a bit about the production. Did you have anything else you wanted to add on that? I did think it was super interesting that they shot in actual war-torn Vienna and it was still divided among the four countries. When I was watching it, I didn't realize that, even though it's obvious there's all the rubble everywhere, like it had to be actual Vienna. And I just thought that was incredible that they were able to actually capture that moment in time once everything had somewhat settled down. And these characters almost feel like they've just, I guess they have, have just been like dropped in this world. Yeah. It was crazy. Well, they, yeah. you know, they're elegant people. Vienna was the center of culture and Mozart and music and Gustav Klimt. And then they're reduced to eating animals, fighting for scraps of food. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And Michelle, did you have anything to add about the director, Carol Reed? Both of his parents were actors. So he was born into this industry, but his dad died when he was really young. So he was technically raised by a single mom and he did struggle with alcoholism and he was a little bit hard to work with, but he never lost respect of people. And he won an Academy Award for Oliver and overall just very respected man, even though he didn't have the easiest life. Of course, I first think Nepo Baby. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) almost, but not, not from successful actors, I would say. I mean, I don't know, but his dad died and he did struggle. So I would say half Nepo, maybe. (laughs) It also makes me think of Oliver because Oliver is a total orphan, no mother or father. So maybe Mm -hmm. he related to that in some way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Guy, when this movie came out, reception, good, bad, indifferent? So in one can. It got 7.2 mil at the box office. Like a couple hundred mil today. Yeah, yeah. So like in 1999, it must have gotten re-released in the theaters and it pulled in 600,000. And that's not, I mean, that's not big numbers today, but if you think about it, it's it's a re-release in theaters and they probably have videotape. And then in 2015, it did 47 in the theaters. 2019, it did 86. Long tail, big long tail on this one. Roger Ebert said this is one of his top 10 films. It was the most popular film in the UK in 1949. I got to tell you guys, if you ever get a chance to see it in the theater, I've seen it on VHS. I've seen it in the movie theater three times. I've seen it on Turner Classic Movies four times. But in the theater, I think Martin Scorsese maybe was one who said, if there's no movie that's more movie lover type movie than this one because of the darkness, the cinematography, the themes... The suspense, the cutting is really fast in the movie. Like it's still oh, the editing. Up. The editing was so good. Really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Like the scene where they were all waiting for Harry to show up. And then just does this really good. You see the buildings, you see a cop and then you see the street, you see another cop and you see some other cops. And then it's like on top of buildings. And then it's really nice boom down onto the uh, British cops. Oh, this is really good. It's, it's really, really good. All right. David, did you have anything you wanted to add at all about Graham Greene or the producers? Sure. Graham Greene's a really interesting guy. You were talking about James Bond. And um, this is a screenwriter. 
just to remind everybody, the famous novelist at the time and screenwriter. So Graham Greene was known as a novelist. I don't think he wrote a lot of screenplays. This might be one of his only ones. Three? I think so, something like that. Okay. Definitely the father of Ian Fleming and Jean Le Carré, like probably the original spy thriller writer. And he lived that life too. From the beginning, he loved to travel to the world's wild and remote places. He went to Liberia, Eastern Europe, Mexico, Haiti. He went to leper colonies in the Congo, all over the place. So because of this, in World War II, he got recruited into MI6. And he was stationed in Sierra Leone in Africa. British Secret Service. That's what James Bond works for, right? It's MI6, right? Yeah. So he was a spy. The guy he worked for in Sierra Leone was his good friend and supervisor. It turned out to be a major Soviet spy. Was it Kim Philby? Yes. <sighs> so uh, some betrayal and intrigue going on there for sure. And he quit MI6 after the war. But he kept his hand in this stuff. I mean, later on, he was a courier for the Cuban revolutionaries. And Fidel Castro made a painting and gave it to him to, like, thank him for his service. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was very Catholic, but he called himself a Catholic agnostic. And so a lot of his books had a lot of Catholic themes. I think there's some Catholic themes in this movie, too. But on the other hand, he said the word Catholic and conservatism can't possibly go together. So he wasn't your typical Catholic of the time. Three years before he started writing The Third Man, he just wrote down the idea on an envelope. A guy goes to a funeral, and next thing he knows, he sees the guy whose funeral he went to walking along the Strand. And that was the start. He sold that idea to Alex Corda, who we knew. And by this time, Graham Greene was considered by many to be the foremost male novelist in England. But he wanted to do movies. So he went to Vienna to research this. And after a week in Vienna, he wasn't sure if there was really a story here. He said, well, the guy dying is interesting. But... And then he found out that there really was this black market in watered-down penicillin. And all these people were getting maimed and killed horribly by this. So that's when the whole story came to him. And he wrote it really quickly as a novella. And David Selznick, one of the biggest producers in Hollywood, he produced Gone with the Wind and Rebecca. He brought Hitchcock into America, King Kong. And he, I think Selznick personally won about seven Academy Awards, a big producer. And Corda was, Selznick was very good. He was an artist. He wasn't just a showman kind of guy. But Corda was the guy that really understood this film better than Selznick. And so Corda arranged to have everything done in Europe. He knew Selznick wouldn't have time to come on the set. And when they disagreed, and Corda and Selznick disagreed about a lot of things, Corda got his way because he was there every day. He was so, a European, too. And he was a European. But also, Carol Reed and Corda saw it eye more than Carol Reed did with Selznick. Right. And I think Corda's brother was the production designer on the movie, too. Yes. So there were some major disagreements right at the end. Besides the casting, I mean, Selznick, I said, wanted Cary Grant. And anyway, when the film was done, Selznick was really afraid about the music score. He thought it was cool, but he also was just afraid that it was too weird and that, you know, it might not make a lot of money with nothing but his that they're playing. And he thought he'd get like a Alfred Newman or somebody to compose a big orchestral score. It's a beautiful looking movie. It'll be great. And Porta and Cal Reed were like, we have to stop this. But the problem was Selznick had the American rights, not only the right to distribute the movie in America, but the right to recut an American version. And in fact, there are two versions. There's an English version and an American version, and they're a little bit different. The American version is 10 minutes shorter. Selznick cut out 10 minutes of the movie. That's right. They're not that different, but you know some differences. So what Corda did is he just held the negative for ransom. He had the negative, and he just said to Selznick, look, we've got to work out these differences or you're not getting the negative. <laughs> and, uh, Dang, collateral. and at first, Selznick was furious, but they sat down together and they kind of came to a meeting of the minds and you know they worked it out amicably. And Corda actually ended up with a piece of the American distribution rights. So he got more money. And they ended up friends. And by the way, Selznick had been a like with Gone with the Wind, he became a benzedrine addict. He used to do a lot of speed to stay up. And then he got Carol Reed hooked on speed when they made this movie so they could shoot all these night scenes. So uh -huh. maybe some of the feeling of the editing and the jitteriness of it is... Uh, yeah, they're tweaking. <laughs> <laughs> you literally are tweaking. 
I want to say one other thing about the music. I read something where the music really is Harry's theme. Like it's the Harry Lime theme because every time Harry's talked about or shows up, like especially when he was revealed in that doorway, the theme is like at the climax at that point. And I feel like the theme is essentially Europe laughing at America. <laughs> yeah, totally. I'm going to say one last thing about Graham Greene. There's a book he wrote after this film in 1955 called The Quiet American. And it's interesting. It's a novel about love, innocence, and moral ambiguity in Vietnam in 1955. And so similar in some ways, definitely took some themes from this. 1955 was right after the French had been defeated and driven out of the country. And supposedly America wasn't there, but it's about an American CIA agent who goes to spread yeah. democracy. But everywhere he goes, bloodshed ensues and people are just dying. And there's this French guy that Graham Greene met in real life who said, we need a third force. And the third force, which was invisible and mysterious, really was America, which you know, Dwight D. Eisenhower was saying, we're not in Vietnam. We don't have any people there. We have nothing to do with it. But of course, Graham Greene spilled the beans by writing a book about a CIA guy that goes to, because there were CIA guys there. So he was persona non grata in America for a while. Wow. Interesting. All right, guys, I think it's oh, wait, time for wait, us. Wait, wait, uh, oh. one more thing. Orson Welles got a spinoff because of this. The Adventures of Harry Lime was a radio show in written for like a year or two. This is before TV where radio was still king. And I guess Harry went on adventures and wasn't quite as bad a guy. It was about the times leading up to this film. So it was, it was like kind of like prequels, I guess. How about the irony of the film where they talk about, you know, death at the very beginning in the opening where Carol Reed's voice is describing Vienna, you see a dead body floating. And they have this line about how there are amateurs and there are professionals and the amateurs get killed. Trevor Howard says, Martins, you were born to be killed. Mm -hmm. um, I love that line. And then later there's a line on the Ferris wheel where you think Orson Welles may push him over. And he says, of course, Holly, I'd never do anything to you and you would never do anything to me. And the end of the movie, the only fan of Holly's writing in all of Vienna gets shot by Harry. <laughs> he kills his one fan. Mm -hmm. And that's when he picks up the gun and he takes the <laughs> <laughs> Which I would do but now too. Now it's personal. Yeah, yeah. You know, Holly is the one who Harry actually chooses to... I mean, Harry does that little little nod. You guys all caught that, I assume, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely do in the theater. So let's go on to our ratings and figure out what everybody thinks. Um, I'm going to start with our guest, Anne Michelle. You have a chance to pick between one and four stars. You can do half stars in between. Anything three and above is A minus, A, A plus. Then you got the Bs and whatever. But where would you put this in terms of your own rating? I'm debating because you said that three is just really that touched you personally. Four stars would be like, it's not only great, but you would carry it in your heart. It touched you in a personal way. Okay, but three, I can still base it just in how it's made. Yeah. And like, it didn't change my life, but it's how it's made. Okay, okay. I'll give it a three. A minus. Yeah. Fair enough. And then the next question is, do you have any people that you know that you would recommend this to? I don't feel like any of the people that I know will know what I'm talking about and like see it in this light. So no. <laughs> I mean, maybe some of my LA film school classmates, but my friends will be like, why are you sending me this? You know? <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, Mr. Lewis. This movie was cool. It did a lot of cool things. I'm going to give it a three and a half. It's an A plus movie, in my opinion. And would you recommend it to any folks you know? Always watch every movie. You say watch movies, good or bad. Yeah, good or bad. Just watch everything. All right. All right. Fair, fair enough. And I hope you'll be keeping track to give us the average when we're done. I'm on it. Um, on it. Okay. Jake, you're next. I would definitely give it a three. Like Anne Michelle said, if we're basing our rating off of the creation of this piece of art, obviously I feel like it's an A, but I don't know that it, it lives in the same place that my favorite films do. But yeah, I'd give it a three. Anyway, and I don't know. I'd re recommend it to her. But she's already seen it. <laughs> my grandma loved film yeah. noir. <laughs> and she has great film taste. That's not a dig at all. You've already said that your mother does not have great film taste, but your grandmother yeah, does. 
my mom and I almost have the same film taste. It's like terrible and tacky. All the bad Goldie Hawn movies we love. <laughs> I know my grandmother would love this. That's awesome. Grace. I'm also going to give it a 3.5. I really loved it. I was thinking about giving it a four, honestly, but I don't know why. I, I know you guys love the soundtrack, but it was taking me out of it a little bit. It sounded to me like SpongeBob. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they had no way of knowing that that would have happened back then. <laughs> Once you guys like explained it, it does make sense, like the comedic aspect of it, I guess. But to me, I was just like, this doesn't match. It was kind of taking me out of it. That's the only thing that I could criticize it for yeah. i think it's it's irony i mean this movie is filled with irony right everything yeah. is but yeah. i think it's kind of an ironic use of music mm -hmm. and is there anyone in your life you would recommend this to yeah anyone who calls themselves a film lover i would definitely recommend it to them well i'm impressed we got a three and a half from you on this that's <laughs> awesome that's a big deal david having yeah. seen this now six times five times four times it's about four and every time I watch it, I enjoy it just as much as the last time. And in fact, every time I watch it, I kind of want to watch it again right away. This time, for the first time, I was thinking, well, those Dutch angles, what do they mean? You know, when does he use mm -hmm. them? Because at the beginning of the film, I thought, oh, he's doing this every time someone's lying. But no, he's not. Then as I watch further, I think he just did it by feel. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a particular... I was Pay attention Formula. to that too. Like, when right. is he using this? I, I was thinking, is it just when they're drinking? But it wasn't. Yeah, the scene <laughs> that you brought up where they're playing the violin, I felt like, oh my God, these people are lit. I'm lit. What's going on? <laughs> There's like a, what the it heck? It really type of... puts you in the scene yeah. of them. Yeah, the first two times I, I saw it, I was just trying to figure out what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I'm like really looking carefully at the shots and how the music fits in and so every time I watch it, I'm looking for new stuff. So I could watch it five more times. Right. So is it a three and a half or a four is the only question for me. Um, and that's just such a tough one. You know, it's not on my top 20 or 30, but it's really close. So do I have to answer? Can I get take a stand? Take a stand. It's kind of the You could do like 3.7. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to do 3.7, but since I can't, I'll do three and a half because, I don't okay. know, I put Citizen Kane above it. So yeah. that's a four. So this is a three and a half. No shame. No shame in a three and a half. I'm excited to watch it again. Me yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And David, there are people you'd recommend this to other than me? Yeah. Any film lover, especially people that like older movies. I mean, I know some people that love movies, but don't love movies made before in color or 1960 or, or 1980 or, I mean, all, you know, so anyone that likes old movies on TCM would really love this, I think. Yeah. And I'm going to agree with you about that. I think this is a movie for people that love movies, that love classics, that are okay with black and white, that like thrillers. I don't think this movie's dated. Mm -mm. No. I was, I was going to ask everybody, but you know, there's nothing in this that feels like, oh, that seems so wrong. Today we do that differently. I mean, other yeah. than make it a completely different story. It's not dated. So here's my thing. This is on my 10 best list. Literally one to 10. It's probably like number seven or eight. Uh, so it's a four star, straight ahead four star for me. It's one of the ones where it comes on, I can't stop watching. Mm. And you know, I love Stagecoach, only gave it three and a half. What can I say? This to me is what movies are all about. I like that. Mm -hmm. Heck yeah. All right, folks. Great choice. Any last thoughts? I'm excited for Brazil. We'll have you back. So it came up to like 3.41 and some numbers. So I don't think you can give it three and a half. I think you got to round down, right? So I think you round up on that one. Yeah, the nearest half. Four is, well, you're putting your finger on the scale. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us here. If you want to stream The Third Man, it's currently available with a subscription to Criterion Channel. It can be rented from just about every other service, and you'll find it showing up on Turner Classic Movies and a bunch of other places periodically. I want to thank my co-host, David Tausick. I want to thank our panelists, Guy Lewis, Jake Flowers, Grace Chapman, and our new guest panelist, Anne Michelle. If you like the show, please tell your friends to rate and review it so other people can find us. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Executive producers are myself, Mark Netter, and Peter Rafelson. 
producer is David Tausick. Please join us on our next episode when we will be discussing the movie Brazil and see how another classic film plays for a new generation of movie lovers on Generation Film. Electric Acid. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid.